0: Welcome to Rhetoric O'Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim. As seen on TV, McGee.
1: I'm Dave and I'm Tim. And today
0: we start our second season of Rhetoric O'Rama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. In this episode, we make a brief foray into the early days of Christian rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of homiletics. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started.
1: Da mihi castitatum et continentum, said noli modo. So Tim, what is homiletics? Homiletics, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, is the application of the general principles of rhetoric to the specific art of public preaching. And why, pray tell, are we starting season two with homiletics? Well. As you will agree, season one was long on ancient Greco-Roman rhetoric and particularly rich in Aristotelian rhetoric, all of which was totally apropos. What you say is true, Tim. But late in season one, we introduced the pathetic tale of Cassian of Imola, the Christian Roman rhetorician who was inscribed to death by his angry pagan rhetoric students. I do recall that sordid episode. So while there is still a lot of Roman rhetoric to investigate, Having broached the topic of Christian rhetoric, I thought we ought to introduce homiletics, because it turns out to have a huge influence upon both Renaissance rhetoric and early American rhetoric.
0: All right, Tim, so then uh, where do we get started? Let's start with the controversy
1: over counting homiletics as a part of rhetoric.
0: How can that be controversial? I mean, preaching, it's, it's clearly a rhetorical act.
1: True, but rhetoric is an art both pagan and secular having been developed by those Greek and Roman pantheists before the birth of Christ, it is likely to be the work of the devil, what with their claims to be able to make the weaker case the stronger. Plus, it's all about worldly advantage, whether in the marketplace or the cesspit of politics. Dave, imagine the response you might get from some quarters if you were to offer rhetorical analysis of the Sermon on the Mount.
0: I get your drift, him. Uh, You know, that would be sacrilegious. And so, thou shalt find rhetorical machinations in the word of
1: God. Absolutely. Yet, despite those Christian thinkers who want hem- homiletics to steer clear of rhetoric, church services often follow a reading of the gospel with a homily, sometimes called a sermon, that might explain or make connections to the message of the gospel.
0: Does that mean I can do a rhetorical an- analysis of the Sermon of the Mount?
1: Hell yeah. Blessed are the meek, <laughs> blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. What rhetorical figure is that, Dave?
0: Uh, that's going to smell like... Um... Anaphora?
1: Absolutely. So, who are the great Christian rhetoricians? There are a few who are huge, but let's go back to that distinction between rhetors and rhetoricians, practitioners and theorists, preachers and teachers of preaching. So, when it comes to preachers, we start with Jesus, but quickly get to the evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have to toss in the Apostle Paul, and we can't forget his disciple Timothy.
0: So they, uh, these are preachers rather than teachers, practitioners of preaching rather than rhetorical theorists?
1: Correct. Now the notion of preachers, not teachers, obscures slightly the fact that homilies are regularly didactic, that is, they have an instructional focus. So in the minds of many Christians, homiletics is directly connected to the mandate to go preach, to evangelize, to proselytize.
0: So did they have uh, some heavy-hitting theorists who preached how to preach?
1: Indeed. One of the biggies is Augustine, also known as St. Augustine, also known as Augustine of Hippo, who is very important to any understanding of Christian rhetoric for a variety of reasons. You might also want to know that he is the patron saint of brewers and printers and engaged in petty larceny as a young man, not because he needed what he stole, but because it was forbidden.
0: You know, I like the cut of this guy's jib. It sounds a lot like a young Dave Dewberry. (laughs)
1: All right, so St. Augustine from 354 to 430 of the current era was a Roman African with a Christian mother and a pagan father who was a student of rhetoric and a professor of rhetoric before he converted to Christianity.
0: Now, I'm not, a, I'm not up to date on this, is uh, Christianity, was it trending at the time?
1: It turns out it was. The emperor had just condemned the Manichaean monks to death and later declared Christianity the only legitimate religion in the Roman Empire.
0: So this dude sounds kind of like an opportunist of sorts.
1: You might say that before he found Christ, he had a 15-year affair with a woman who bore him a son, and then he dumped her for a 10-year-old heiress. Unfortunately, he had to wait until the heiress was 12 before he could marry her. But in the meantime, he decided to become a celibate priest.
0: I just want to go on the record here now. This does not sound like a Dave Dewberry,
1: right?
0: <laughs> so uh, what were Augustine's contributions to homiletics?
1: He was a prolific author who wrote about everything from original sin to just war theory and penned numerous commentaries on the Bible and left stacks of sermons and letters.
0: Are any of these any actually
1: any good? Most of them are great if you consider the list of philosophers, theologians, linguists, educators, and politicians who have quoted him for the past 1600 years.
0: Uh, do you have any example or something of uh, Augustinian rhetoric, rhetorical or pedagogical practice.
1: I do, Dave. You'll like this based on your appreciation of the non-homogeneous audience.
0: I love the non-homogeneous audience.
1: Augustine wrote, "You should adapt your instruction to fit your students' educational background. be they already well educated by good teachers or uneducated, or most troubling of all, the poorly educated who believe themselves to be well-educated.
0: It's deep, Tim, like Chicago pizza. So are there any other, uh, any other heavy hitters, or you got anything else on Augustine?
1: Indeed. Ambrose is another biggie. He's uh, living between 340 and 397 of the current era.
0: So he was a contemporary of Augustine.
1: Indeed. Actually, a bit before, he was the one who baptized Augustine.
0: So what makes this Ambrose guy so
1: special? Unlike Augustine, who was brilliant in Latin but not in Greek, Ambrose was great in both and used his knowledge of Greek to write a lot of explanations of the Septuagint, the supposedly divinely inspired Old Testament in Greek. He too, like Augustine, had studied rhetoric plus literature and law. He used all of his rhetorical training to make compelling arguments in support of the Nicene version of Christ against the Arian version of Christ. As a result, many of his sermons make expert use of two kinds of logos, the logical reasoning of enthymemes along with close reading of the actual text of both the Old and New Testaments.
0: He sounds awesome. Who else you got?
1: There's this guy, Jerome. He is living between 347 and 420 of the current era.
0: Another contemporary, huh?
1: Indeed. Uh, Glad to see you're keeping score, Dave.
0: Well, what is uh, Jerome's claim to fame?
1: He is the guy who translated most of the Bible into Latin, which eventually became the official Bible for the Church of Rome in the 16th century. So from what he did uh, translate it? He translated it from Hebrew and from Greek and from Aramaic and from Old Latin. So that's that's
0: quite impressive. How was he able to, uh, to do all that?
1: Like Augustine, Jer- Jer- Jerome was not originally a Christian. And like Augustine, he had studied grammar and rhetoric and Latin and Greek, and he too did a bit of carousing as a young man before feelings of guilt got him to convert to Christianity.
0: I'm kind of sensing a theme here, Tim.
1: (laughs) Eventually, Jerome quit studying the classical authors and focused on the Bible. He learned some Hebrew and translated some parts of the Gospels into Greek.
0: So is he more of a translator than a preacher or a rhetorician?
1: He's definitely a translator, but he was also quite the polemicist. Like his contemporaries, Augustine and Ambrose, he had to address competing claims about theology and church doctrine, and he used all his rhetorical skills, including writing a dialogue, to make his points.
0: So what you're saying here is that the, uh, the three doctors or fathers of the church we're trained rhetoricians. It sure looks that way. And it's I guess that's why it's uh such a big surprise uh uh, uh uh successful enterprise, right? I agree. Right? Rhetoric is the key. Yep. So wrap up. Uh from homiletics, it seems like to be the application of principles of rhetoric to the specific act of preaching. And several of the fathers of the Christian church happen to have been very knowledgeable based on what you told us. Um uh, in the ways of that old pagan Greco-Roman rhetoric. And much of this transition occurred in the fourth century, right? Mm -hmm. So thanks to the Emperor Constantine embracing uh, uh, Christianity, uh, the Romans quit using Christianity as lion bait. And some of the fathers of the church were not only prolific, but pretty deep thinkers. With the result that for millennia, philosophers, scientists, theologians, and politicians have pointed back to dudes like Augustine uh, to support their arguments.
1: Plus, homiletics plays a huge role in the expansion of rhetoric from a discipline focused primarily upon oral communication to one that was very involved in both the analysis and production of written texts. The fathers of the church were translators and textual critics who decided not only what was in and what was not in the Bible, but also how we should interpret the difficult passages. Finally, as the church spread both geographically and in numbers of followers, there was an increased need for trained preachers who could not only spread the good word, but explain it to the congregation in an increasingly diverse collection of languages.
0: Tim, challenges?
1: You got one? I do indeed. Imagine you are teaching public speaking, and you have in your class a student Uh who actually is a principal in um, a church. Okay. And it turns out that this person seems to be a rabid hate monger. This person has negative things to say about everything, every kind of being different from himself. Now, do you teach this rabid hate monger how to be a more effective communicator?
0: Um, Well, I would say that question assumes, if I'm understanding it correctly, that just because you hate and express that hate, you're not doing it effectively, right? So perhaps maybe it is effective. I would, I, I guess I would look at it, I would divorce the content from the rhetorical uh, strategies and theories employed. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if I, let's say for argument's sake, I disagree with that hateful content for whatever reason, I would not try to change their views on ideas, rather as a free speech person, I'm more of a free speech guy Mm -hmm. than a rhetoric guy, I would encourage the free trade of ideas and debate in the classroom Mm -hmm. to mollify that. Okay. That would be my answer.
1: All right. How'd I do? Did I dodge the question? No, I think I think that's a pretty good answer. One answer I've heard, and I won't say from where I heard it, is what you do with someone who seems to be espousing all sorts of hateful ideas Uh is you give them praise when they do it badly so that they will be less able to spread this sort of hateful message into the world.
0: That's interesting. Uh, I don't think I would do that. (laughs) Um, One that just seems counterproductive to the educational mission. Mm -hmm. However, some people might see the educational mission of rhetoric as uh, getting people to advocate the correct principles. Yes. But uh, you know, I... Understand what Aristotle, going back to him, says. It's a, uh, rhetoric is an amoral tool. It can Ooh. be used for good. It can be used for bad. Um, it's not my purpose to tell them what to use it for. That's up to them, their identity, their beliefs. Because we live in this giant radical plurality. I'm just here to give them the tools.
1: Thereby, once again, establishing yourself as more of an Aristotelian than a Platonist, who in his dialogue, the Gorgias, raises Mm -hmm. this question about, do you give someone who doesn't have good ethical principles the tools of rhetoric? Who's to say that I have the good ethical principles to give them, (laughs) right? Some might say you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I would say I
0: don't, at least at some points of my life. So I have a challenge for you, Tim. Okay. Why is homiletics not explicitly taught? in the classroom in the traditional public speaking curriculum?
1: I'd say for the most part because it has gone into a different classroom, which is, you know, Bible studies and and sort of preacher training classroom. Mm -hmm. So I'd say in the American classroom, it's become largely secular, and so the focus would be on how to make speeches that you would use in the public assembly, and since in this country we have uh, something of a separation of church and state, we've also seemingly separated Church rhetoric and state rhetoric, mm-hmm. uh, but if you did go uh, to uh, a theological seminary, you would be taught homiletics, but you wouldn't get it in your public school curriculum of public speaking because of the uh, division between uh, church and state.
0: Now, let me so that brings my, so my second challenge: um, Is it possible to use Christian rhetorical theory, homiletics, and the like for non-religious purposes? Yes. And so if it can be, why is it relegated to just those types of religious classes? Because well, I'll tell you, you know, when presidents transition from power, regardless if they're from opposite parties or not, they have the common uh, uh, idea of protecting the office of presidency. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Clinton told George Bush, what you need to do to give a good speech, because Bill Clinton was seen as a good speaker, um, was to learn how to give an academic lecture mm-hmm. and how to preach a sermon. Yes. And it doesn't matter that you actually preach the sermon, but you present in that style. Mm-hmm. And then we also have that idea of civil religion, right? Mm-hmm. There's the Jeremiahd, mm-hmm. right? We can do an episode on that. Uh, it seems like those are all great opportunities to use this kind of Christian rhetoric principles in non-religious contexts. Yes.
1: And Did so I answer my own question? Y- yes. But okay. A, a recent example of that occurred uh, when someone basically uh, explained his reason for voting against his party, and then he justified it because of the fact that when he had taken oaths to serve in his civic responsibilities, mm-hmm. he was taking this oath before God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in contemporary American discourse, people, um, some of them are very happy to quickly bring in the religion and base claims upon that, but in general, uh, people avoid it. But here was a case where someone said, my civic... Uh, my correct civic behavior is based upon my profound belief in having made an oath to God. I like it. Yeah. We good? Yep.
0: Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit.
1: Okay, here we have another sort of historical anecdote, and it refers to something that some people would say is a fallacy, and it's something called casuistry. And so this comes from the Latin word casus, which would be case. And so if you're making an argument based upon principles, then you don't go case by case. But if you start introducing case by case, what it does is it opens the possibility of sort of coming up with sneaky or tricky arguments to violate uh, your principles. So the the term casuistry is also called Jesuitism, and this hmm. has to do with the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, who were both a uh, teaching order within the uh, Catholic Church, but also they were sort of the uh, the army that worked against the Protestant Reformation. And so basically, um, some uh, Blaise Pascal basically attacks the Jesuits for using casuistry because what they're doing is they are getting into sort of uh, um, moral relativism. Uh, So any attempt to decide something on a particular case rather than on the principles runs the risk of uh, lapsing into moral relativism.
0: Before we go get some cheeseburgers, let's take care of some business.
1: This is another new sponsor that I'm very excited about. Unless you're living under a rock, you generate a tremendous amount of personal data every time you use a credit card, an electronic device, a bank, or even a grocery store. And unless you have been extremely careful, that data has been collected, stored, analyzed, and increasingly sold and resold to banks, insurance companies, marketing firms, government agencies, and political operatives. Yes, you can limit this unauthorized trade in your personal data somewhat by doing things like turning off location sharing on your smartphone. But guess what? Your Maps app won't work very well. So rather than settle for B-grade performance on all your apps, why not become the person who profits from the sale of your data? That's right, you can directly sell your most personal information about salary, marital status, religious beliefs, political affiliations, and sexual preference to every pollster, market research firm, and local, state, and federal police agency. Simply fill out our extensive profile questionnaire covering every aspect of your life, from kindergarten attendance record to your history of STDs, and we'll do the rest, identifying any anomalies that make you special and therefore more valuable from a data analysis perspective. You say you're a straight white male who enjoys flower arranging? We have clients who want to get in touch. You're a millennial woman of color with daddy issues considering a career in the armed forces? There are government agencies desperate to know who you are. So instead of giving away your personal data every time you swipe your Visa card or Tinder app, take charge of selling your personal information by becoming a charter member of BuyMyData.com. That's BuyMyData.com, the original personal proprietary data reseller.
0: You know, Tim, I'm not supposed to say this, but um, I've been using BuyMyData.com for about three (laughs) years now, and I'll tell you, it's been great. I've cut out the middleman, and I just sell that. Uh, I talk to Amazon, I call them once a night, mm-hmm. and just send them uh, the information, yeah. they send me a check, or sometimes they give me a gift card, and they'll give me a little extra money if I use a gift card, because they know I'm going to spend it back. You have uh,
1: always like been on the cutting edge, Dave.
0: Well, you know, hey, if people want to know about Dave Dewberry, all they got to do is give me some money, and I <laughs> will do it, right? So I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as Seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Rider University, and this has been Rhetoric-O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric.
1: We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago.
0: Rhetoric Orama is recorded at Casto Di Pado Studios. If you have any questions or looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fund, or consult your local library.